I'd like to welcome everyone this morning. I guess we would say the weather has told us the summer is finished, and I guess we're getting ready for that transition to fall and winter, but I have to admit it's coming awful quick, maybe a little bit too quick. Would you take a moment and look at the rear page of your bulletins as well as the overhead slides? Please note some of these dates and events in the life of the church in the next couple of weeks and months. First, today uh, at around 6 o'clock, the family ministry group, and that's grades 4 through 12, will meet for some fun and some times at the McMillan's house today. So again, uh, please come dressed accordingly since you might be outside. If it rains, they'll also be willing to, you know, change gears and go to some indoor activities. But it should be a fun time. And again, that's uh, everyone's invited uh, from grades 4 through 12 at 6 o'clock at the McMillan's. Our fall cleanup day, if you have two hours to spare, is Saturday, November 21st. We would like to clean up the grounds outside as well as decorate both upstairs and downstairs in the sanctuary for the holiday season. So again, if you have two hours to spare, uh, we would uh, gladly uh, welcome you to help us get some things done. And for those that don't know, we have uh, an, every Sunday morning at 9.15, we have a prayer service, prayer meeting for our requests throughout the church and the body beginning at 9.15 downstairs. If some of you also might have some prayer requests, uh, we would welcome you to put those prayer requests on three by five uh, index cards on our prayer wall that's located in our cloak closet there in the right rear of the sanctuary. So again, prayers we'll find out is a pretty powerful tool for each one of us in our relationship with God. Also, you take a note that we are going to have a baptism service on November 1st. If some of you also have not signed up, I think currently we have nine or ten people that have stepped up and said that they feel the call to be baptized. It's never too late. Please contact one of the elders or at least Pastor Sam, and uh, we'll start on that process. We'll also ask you to take a, a note that our Christmas Eve service, candlelight service, will begin at 7 p.m., on December 24th. Uh, normally those services take about 90 minutes. So for planning purpose, from about 7 to 8.30, that will be our candlelight Christmas Eve service. And then we have our annual business meeting. Please make a note that that will be on January 31st. We will share the budgets as well as leadership changes. We would ask you to continue to pray for the leadership team as they're continuing to work through those issues. And again, because we are congregational, as far as our polity or governance, all those decisions are really yours. The leadership team will get all of the budgets as well as the changes that, that they're proposing to you by December 15th. So you'll have more than a month to reach out, to ask questions, to make sure you're ready and comfortable with uh, that business meeting, which will be on January 31st. So I would ask you to pray for that leadership team in the next couple weeks as they try to finalize those plans. I also would ask you to pray on Monday, wherever you're at, at 7 a.m., because we welcome and open the downstairs for Narcotics Anonymous. And some of you may have never been affected by that insidious disease to a family member or someone that you know, but it is insidious. And what we would ask you to do 
each Monday at 7 o'clock is to pray for those that are battling those addictions. Also, the next time you see Mary Stoffer, tell her happy birthday. It was her birthday yesterday. So happy birthday, Mary. All right, would everybody please stand for our call to worship this morning? Our call to worship is Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in the house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol in your forehead. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Praise be to God. glory fall our father who art in heaven the rocks cry out your fame come and let your glory come and let your glory fall I will sing sing a new song I will sing sing a new song I will sing, sing a new song to the Lord. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Every heart proclaim the mercy of your name on earth as it is in heaven. God give us new every morning, mercy's daily bread. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus we pray. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us with your hand. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus we pray. Father, we pray, I will sing, sing a new song, I will sing, sing a new song, I will sing, sing a new song to the Lord. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, every heart proclaim the mercy of your name. On earth as it is in heaven For the kingdom is yours And the power is yours 
glory forever, amen. And the kingdom is yours, and the power is yours, the glory forever, amen. For the kingdom is yours, and the power is yours, the glory forever, amen. And the kingdom is yours, and the power is yours, the glory forever, amen. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Every heart proclaim the mercy of your name on earth as it is in heaven. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Every heart proclaim the mercy of your name on earth as it is in heaven. No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope Righteousness is not in me, but only you. No humble dress, no fervent prayer, no lifted hands, no tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong my righteousness is jesus life my debt was paid by jesus death my weary load was borne by him and he alone can give me separation from the world no work I do no gift I give can cleanse my conscience cleanse my hands I cannot cause my soul to live but Jesus died and rose again the power of death is overthrown merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone my righteousness is Jesus life my debt was paid by Jesus death my weary load was borne by him and he alone can give me rest 
Yes, he alone can give me rest. Please be seated. A few prayer requests this morning that we're going to take before the Lord. Remembering uh, our pastor, Sam, who's uh, preaching at a revival uh, this weekend. He's preached two sermons uh, Friday night, two Saturday, and he'll preach two today. So we'll be praying for him uh, that he'll hold up <laughs> uh, and praying for those who hear the gospel, uh, that the Lord would open their hearts. Think of our brother, uh, Tom Lacey, who has now tested positive for COVID uh, for the second time. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we want to hold him up. Uh, Mike and Peggy Lynn Rohr have returned uh, to their home in Washington Borough with their newly adopted son, Caleb. Uh, Mike uh, told me this morning that everything is well, and actually little Caleb has actually put on a few ounces uh, since they got a hold of him. Uh, we'll also be thinking about those who are going to be baptized, uh, take that step of faith uh, and obedience next week, uh, be praying for them, and uh, of course, uh, the election coming up, that the Lord would, uh, the Lord's will would be accomplished, uh, as we know it will be. Then we think of uh, our dear sister, Faye Lehman, and uh, actually all those who are sick and shut in or unable to be with us. Uh, this is uh, going to be a difficult time for Faye as uh, uh, she has uh, encountered great loneliness in, uh, in the place where she's living and then there, her wedding anniversary and her uh, late husband's birthday are all uh, around this time. So let's be praying for her that the Lord would send his spirit and encourage her. Uh, so we say these prayer requests now, not just so that I might pray for them, but that you might pray for them uh, this week and hold these up. So I'm going to look to the Lord in a word of prayer. And today, um, something a little different. I'm going to conclude our time of prayer with a Puritan prayer. And uh, so you'd be listening for that. So let's pray. O oh, great God, our Father, we praise you and thank you this morning for your steadfast love for us in uncertain times, for your faithfulness even when we have been unfaithful, for your love when there is so much hate in the world. We thank you for the peace that we have through your son, Jesus Christ, when there is so much unrest. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, our bedrock, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, our all in all. We think this morning of the church we're so thankful that you have established this local body, New Hope Christian Fellowship. We pray that our witness 
in the city of, uh, in the borough of Marietta would remain steadfast and true. We think of those in Marietta ministering in Jesus' name this morning, breaking the bread of life, and we pray for strength for them and that all of us, the congregation, would be, have open hearts and be ever mindful of our need for the gospel each and every day. We think of uh, the people of our community and pray for them, including the youth of our community. And we think of the church universal. We pray that our witness would remain true to your word. We think of those throughout the world suffering persecution this day as they attempt to worship. We pray for them that you would strengthen them, that you enable them to feel blessed to suffer in Jesus' name. But more importantly, that you would meet their each and every need. We thank you, Father, for your word this morning, your word which gives us hope, your word which gives us wisdom, your word which brings conviction, your word which is a witness to us and for us. We think in these troubled times about our community and our nation. We pray for our leaders, both here at the church, in the church universal, and our leaders in the community, in the county, and in our nation. We pray that they would be looking to you for guidance and wisdom. We pray for our law enforcement and emergency responders at this time, that you would uphold them in their duties and that you would keep them safe. We think, Father, this morning of the families of our community and that they might be strengthened by our witness, perhaps, but they might be strengthened as families. We know how important the family is as we see in your word. Keep our youth safe. And Father, we pray for the youth of this community that they might find anchors for their souls, not just physical safety, but that you would lead them to Christ. And we think particularly of the youth and children of New Hope Christian Fellowship, that you would provide the same for them that we as a body would be their anchors, that we would be people of the Lord that they can trust in. We want to lift up our brother Tom Lacey at this time and just pray that you would meet his every physical need as well as emotional and spiritual, that you would bring him to full health and enable him to return to work. We're praising you this morning for your answering our prayers regarding Mike and Peggy Lynn Rohrer and Asher and Aiden and Cora and now Caleb. We pray for this little one, this new little one that they have welcomed into their family. 
We pray that even at an early age, you would bring him to repentance and a, and a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for Mike and Peggy Lynn, their strength and the wisdom and the guidance that they need now for their new family of six. We think of uh, the election coming up, and Father, we are mindful that you are sovereign, that you appoint our leaders. So, Father, would you make your will known? Father, we're praying that you would still have a blessing for our country, that you would appoint leaders that would be true to your word, that would value the sanctity of life, Father, that would be looking to you for guidance and wisdom. We also think of our sister Faye Lehman and all others uh, at home alone, suffering with loneliness and memories from the past. We pray that you would send your spirit, even at this hour, lift them up. Put your everlasting arms of love around them. And Lord, we pray for the one who is crying out to you even at this hour. We don't know what the issue is, but you do. Father, send your spirit to minister to them, even right now. And Father, if our hope were in these prayers alone, we would have no hope. But the worth of Jesus perfumes our words. Our great high priest pour down upon us streams of needful grace. Bless us in all our undertakings, in every thought of our minds, in every word of our lips, in every step of our feet, in every deed of our hands. Jesus, you live to bless. You die to bless. You rise to bless. You ascend to bless. You take your throne to bless. And now you reign to bless. Give sincerity to our desires and earnestness to our petitions as we've offered them up. Give us passion in our love. And we pray this all in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Stand and sing. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest without you. I fall apart You're the one That guides my heart 
sin runs deep your grace is more where grace is found is where you are where you are lord
Master tries me still. I cling to your commands. Let every effort of my life display the matchless worth of Christ. Make me a living sacrifice. Be glorified today. Your spirit still is here, and though my strength fades like the light, new mercies will appear. I rest in you, abide with me, until our trials and suffering give way to final victory. Glorified today, I rest in you, abide with me until our trials and suffering give way to final victory. Be glorified today. Before I begin, I was just given a note that one of our members of the church, Brian Pipe Pyle, is in the hospital, and he has tests tomorrow to find out what is happening, because they really need some answers. So please keep Brian Pyle and the family in your prayers this week. This morning, I'd like to take a moment and look and studied the very prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Many Christian parents teach it to their children. Sunday school teachers teach it to their students. And even we as adults, we recite this prayer over and over. Today, my hope, my prayer, is for us to better understand why Jesus chose these roughly 50 words. Jesus was always very, very careful when he gave advice. So why did he choose these words? Yes, for the most part, we always look at this as a model way in how to pray. But I think there is something much deeper when we look at the words that he chose. I think Jesus was trying to tell the people of the day a certain thing, as well as he tells us today. It's one of the shortest prayers that's found in the Bible. Too often we run through it like we're running a 50-yard dash or a 100-yard dash. Probably takes less than 10 seconds to read or recite. 
but if you really study it, it takes us a lifetime to really understand. And even if we understand, the question is, do we implement it in our daily lives? Jesus taught these disciples to pray. He teaches us as disciples of him also to pray. And I think most Christians agree, yes, we do have a responsibility to pray. I mean, we pray. That's what we, we do. But so many Christians, it seems, today in the churches of America and throughout the world, they want to do more than just pray. We want to do something that's important to God. We want to be somebody important to him. And in today's world, it seems like that we want to build, we want to mobilize, especially for social justice. We want to show our strength, our influence. Prayer seems like such a small thing to do. And many of us really question, does prayer even work? Is anybody even listening up there? At the same time, there are many Christians who will say, you know, look, I'm going to be honest with you. I really struggle to pray. They struggle to find time in their busy days. They're busy. They're easily distracted. And usually they carve out a time when they're ready to go to bed when they're exhausted. And usually as they pray, they then fall asleep. There's a story of Martin Luther. I think most of you know who Martin Luther was, the great Protestant reformer. He's the one that nailed his 95 theses on that Catholic church in Wittenberg, Germany in 1517. I don't know if you ever really saw a picture of Martin Luther. But if you did, here was a man that was in a desperate need of a haircut. He needed a haircut, and I mean it. And you ought to see a picture if you can. Today, you know, they really doctor them up. But, you know, but you could get an original picture. Man, he needed a haircut in a bad way. And, believe it or not, he had a barber. And his barber's name was Peter Beskendorf. And one day, Beskendorf asked Martin Luther, Hey, Martin Luther, I really struggle to pray. Can you give me some advice? So Peter agreed, I mean, Martin agreed, went home, prayed about it, then took pen to paper and inked out some advice. He even gave it a title, and it was called A Simple Way to Pray for Master Peter the Barber. Luther pointed, first of all, Peter to the Lord's Prayer, but then he also wrote down this advice. His advice was, so as a diligent and good barber, you must keep your thoughts, senses, and eyes precisely on the hair and scissors or the razor in your hand and not forget where you trimmed or shaved. For if you talk a lot and become easily distracted thinking about something else, you might well as cut off someone's nose or mouth or even their throat. Well, Martin Luther had a sense of humor. I guess most of these didn't know that. But he did. But I think the point comes through what he was trying to tell Peter and he's trying to tell us. We need to resist distractions. We need to really understand what's happening. And he also was saying, you know what, a distracted barber could be a dangerous barber. 
So next time you start talking to your barber, just some advice, just some advice. Well, we have a lot to learn, and what I'd like for us to do this morning is to study, study the context and the words that Jesus gives the disciples. So turn with me to Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 5 through 13. So turn, if you would, to your Bible, Matthew 6, verses 5 through 13. Starting at verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret, will he'll reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask him. Verse 9, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pause and pray because I really want to dig into these words. So let's ask Lord we ask you to please quiet our minds and our hearts this morning. We ask you to speak with us. We now come to meet with you. Meet with us here. Reveal yourself. Fill this place. We want to receive that food, the truth of your holy word. Lord, please take that truth and most importantly, plant it deep inside each member that's here this morning so that it may shape and fashion us in your likeness, that the light of these words are a constant reminder as we tread through this worldly experience. Yes, speak, O oh Lord, renew our minds. Help us grasp the heights of the plans you have for us. Help us believe that these truths are unchanged from the dawn of time. Give us grace. We stand firmly on your promises. Strengthen our faith and give us assurances. As we walk, you will walk alongside us. Yes, O oh Lord, speak to our hearts this morning. Amen. Many as you know that the Bible gives us two, two accounts of this prayer from two different authors. You just read the view of Matthew. Now I want you to flip over to what Luke tells us about this prayer. So keep your finger there in Matthew, because we're going to come back to that and study that text. But let's look at the second iteration that talks about this Lord prayer. Chapter 11 of Luke, starting in verse 1. We're going to look at four verses. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, 
one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Lead us not into temptation. In Luke's account, the disciples come to him. They come to him and they ask, Lord, teach us to pray. In Matthew's account, the first one we read, that prayer really anchors what comes before it. Today, in most of our Bibles, we have breaks, chapter 5, chapter 6. But it really needs to be read together, chapter 5 and chapter 6. In chapter 5, he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And it's important so then we have context. We know what's happening. It gives us background so we can put this prayer in proper, say, context. And what the Sermon on the Mount, not to take a lot of time on it, what he was trying to point out to the people there was to paint a picture of what the kingdom of heaven was going to look like. The kingdom of heaven had key essentials of what that life in the kingdom would be. And what he was trying to tell them that Jesus' kingdom is going to bring a complete transformation of values, a transformation of what piety and religious practice look like, especially in terms of Fasting, forgiveness, and taking care of those less fortunate in prayer. To the Jewish people at that time, they had two major requirements. And there was really, and I'll get into that in a minute, but there was really three cardinal parts of being a good Jew. One was giving, giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. And it's very interesting in Hebrew, the word Tadaska is the same word for righteousness as well as almsgiving. They use the same exact word. So that the Jews, and in Hebrew, giving alms was looked at as being righteous. Hmm. And there was an old rabbinical saying that went like this, greater is he who gives alms than all the sacrifices that he offers. That's how important it was to the Jews at that day. So what Jesus is trying to do is to trying to tell them that these three great pillars of their religious life, the how and what they were doing every day, was sort of not right, was sort of off kilter. It was, that's not the way God had intended it to be. So Jesus spends some time before he goes into this instruction and giving them a prayer to try to give them an understanding of their everyday religious life. So let's see if we can paint this picture. Think of if you were there. It's the Sermon on the Mount. There's hundreds, thousands of people. They're all there to hear. He's teaching. Who's in the audience? Well, there's Jews. But there's also what? Pagans and Hebrews. And they all come with their own what? Prayer, background of religious traditions. So what Jesus does right away, he knows the audience and he separates them. He says, okay, here's the praying practices of the Jews. And here's the praying practices of the pagans or the Gentiles. 
And if you were in this Jewish group, they had two major requirements every day that they had at least to do this. It was one was the Shema or Shema, how some people might refer to it. And we opened up our call to worship with that in Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It had to be recited by the Jew each morning. And it had to be recited before the third hour or nine o'clock. So they had to repeat that in a couple other prayers every morning and every night. And then there was a second requirement that they had to do daily, and that was to repeat what was known as the Shimon Ares, which was a series of 18 prayers. And they still use those 18 prayers somehow over time. Those 18 prayers are now morphed into 19. Don't know why, but, and they use it still today in the Jewish synagogue. Now, every day they had to read these 18 prayers, or 19, in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening, as well as the Shema in the morning and the evening. For the Gentiles, the pagan, that other group, they praying practices was more along what evolved from the Eastern cultures. They had a habit of nearly hypnotizing themselves by endless chanting of the same words over and over and over again. And scripture gives us examples of this chanting, mindless babbling. You can look, Scripture tells us in 1 Kings 18, listen to these words, and how all the prophets of Baal, all the prophets of Baal, cried out to their God. They said, oh, Baal, answer us. Oh, Baal, answer us. And Scripture says they kept saying that from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us. There was no answer. It also tells us in the New Testament, in Acts 19.34, that the Ephesian mob cried for two hours the same words. Those words were what? Great is Artemis of the, the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Can you imagine being there for two hours and just hearing a chant like that? Well, that was the praying practices of this audience there on the Sermon on the Mount. The praying of the Pharisees, you'll note there in our text at verse 5, verse 5 says what? They're being characterized by hypocrisy. They pray standing in the synagogues in the whitest parts of the street in order to what? To be seen by men. They're spiritual phonies. They're parading for themselves. They weren't praying for the glory of God or for God's plan. And according to the scripture, it may have been hypocrisy at its worst. Then the second group in the culture there, the pagans and Gentiles, look at what the scripture says in verse 7. What's it say? The pagans pray using vain repetition, thinking they'll be heard for their much speaking. The Pharisees, they prayed as hypocrites. Pagans, they were more mechanical. For the Pharisees, they thought it was really about their being pious. Pagans, as I said, it was nothing more than sort of mindless, gibberish, meant to badger their God with some special miracle that he'd answer them. 
But as we know, there's no answer. The sins of the Pharisees were selfishness. The sins of the pagans, Gentiles, maybe it was mindlessness and ritualism. That's what Jesus is saying. That's not what you should do. You can't have these false motives when you pray. And look at the verse. He says there, beware of your practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Jesus is telling them, and he's trying to tell us too, people, if that's what you do, you lost your way. That's not right. And I think he's trying to tell us, hey, what's here? What's in this inner heart? What's the motive? Are we acting for the glory of God or some superficial, superficial, insecure nature of our own belief system? So either we pursue the glory of God by humbling ourselves in quiet secrecy, or we can extol our own glory before others. The fact is, you can't do both. So stop. And also he says in verse 8, look, your father knows what you need before you even ask. So the first key before he even gets into what he wants to tell them about the prayer is to humble yourself when you speak to the creator who knows all things. Now here's a question for every one of you. Can you remember back when you first started to learn how to pray? Can you remember back that far? Come on now, I want you to think. I want you to think. What was your earliest memories of learning how to pray? So I can easily understand how in Luke's version, this disciple says, how do we do this? How do you do it? Well, for me, my earliest memories was a small child at nighttime, my mother sitting on the edge of the bed, and she taught me and then listened to me say my prayers. Actually, I only knew one prayer. You know, full confession, one prayer. Here it is. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Can any of you relate? I guess it's still considered a child's prayer. I suppose it's what I prayed all the time. You know, look, I didn't understand the words. The concept of a soul to me was foreign, was way out there. Look, as a young child, you know what I thought about, what I dreamt about? I was going to be a famous baseball player like Mickey Battle, or a great quarterback like Johnny Unitas in that day. Or I was going to be like the famous man in the world. You know who the famous man in the world in my mind was? Davy Crockett, because he had the most... The greatest television show. Remember that television show? Davy Crockett, King of the Wild. Yeah, man. Anybody relate? Well, <laughs> hey, I'm being honest, right? But every night I'd talk about this death concept, and I'd say the word die. Woo. It was what we would say back there, gave me the heebie-jeebies. So my earliest expression, a prayer was a mixture of fear and bewilderment. And I have to admit, you know, I had those similar feelings about God. 
as I interpreted, God was far away, and that was fine with me. You know, no problems. I didn't enjoy the thought that he was going to come into my bedroom every night and might take my soul, whatever that was. And I didn't want to die. I knew that. I was young enough and smart enough to say that doesn't seem it pass muster. And as the years went by, my mother stopped listening to me to say my prayers. We had four other brothers, so she had to teach that prayer to them. But I didn't really understand it. But I was convinced if I didn't say it, something awful or tragic or bad was going to happen to me. So I usually, again, understand when those disciples there in Luke said, how do we do this? What's the right way? Teach us, Lord, teach us. So he gives them, and I think he gives us some instructions of what's known as this Lord's Prayer that we're going to look at. Some would want to call it the Disciples' Prayer because he gave it to the disciples. Okay. And most people think it's a prayer, like it's a series of petitions. And I would sort of suggest to you that these may actually be more statements of fact Statements of fact that he wants you to understand that audience that was there as well as us today. There's a series of statements. Yeah, you might say it's a petition, but I'm going to stay with my thesis that says these are facts. So pray like this in this way. Verse 9, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's acknowledging that God is, is not only our Father who's interested in our welfare, but he's approachable at any time. And he resides not on earth that we can understand. You know, this place is, has a spiritual dimension, a reality that God has really hidden from us. We want to know everything. There are certain things that God has hidden from us. It's a place that really doesn't doesn't we can understand it fully because we don't understand the space-time continuum that's where our mind's at that's not God's and this verse also tells us that God's transcendent he's there he's in this place and they want to use the word heaven so what's heaven well it's a place where God makes his glory known it's where angels it's where other Heavenly creatures exist. It's where the redeemed saints all worship him. And Jesus is trying to tell us right away, this God that they all worship deserves our respect and devotion. Jesus is trying to tell them with that first word, they're part of the family, this word, our, it starts. We're in this together. Sonship, our ability to rate to God as a, as a father. And this simple idea is God as a far, father is a foreign concept in many cultures. If you ever talk to any missionaries, people that are abroad, they'll tell you that in many of those cultures there are monotheism. They have many, many gods. And these gods are hostile to man. These gods have to be appeased. So when you start, Jesus is trying to tell the pagans in this, in this group, hey, this is a friendly guy. He's like your father. They have a tough time understanding that because to them, gods are angry. And they afflict their will on their subjects. 
Look at Greek religions, Greek mythology. Remember this great story of Prometheus and Zeus? Prometheus shared fire with earth. Zeus is mad. Zeus then chains up Prometheus on a cliff. And every day the eagle comes and attacks Prometheus and eats out his liver. And every night the liver grows back because he's immortal. And the cycle continues, continues. That's the way they looked at gods. Gods had to be appeased. They're vengeful. Here, Jesus is trying to tell them, pagans, this God's not like that. He's not like that. He acts like a real father. He's made promises to the people. And we know that fulfillment of that promise really comes only through redemption. We even get better assurances in the New Testament when we call God the Father, not because we're his children as, as, as Jesus was telling these pagans here back you know, in his day, by, but by children of the virtue of adoption. In Romans 8, 14 it says, only those that have the spirit of God, the spirit of adoption, can call out to God as Abba Father. God loves us no less than his own son. But probably the most important word here is the word hallowed. This is, that's the most important word. After you know that he's in heaven and, he, and it's our, it's hallowed. It means to be treated as most holy. Look, God is different than anything else. He's unique. And Jesus couldn't explain this as much as he needs. But he's trying to say, you need to treat this God differently, uniquely, extol higher, you know, praise because of his holiness. So what Jesus is trying to tell them at the very beginning, you've got to glorify God. Put his glory on display. Everything's about showing God's glory, not man's. So the first statement, fact, not a petition, God's name needs to be hallowed for his holiness. God was trying to teach that to Moses when he gave him the Ten Commandments. Remember when he was trying to explain who he was? And look at the first three commandments. The first one, he was trying to say, look, I'm not like all these other gods. No. And you should have no other gods before me. Fact statement number two builds on the first in verse 10. Thy kingdom come. What does that mean? I'm sure the disciples, when they heard this about a kingdom coming, they all had different ideas. Oh, we're going to be in charge you know, we're going to get those Romans. I think Jesus, well, that's why he took time, if you really study the Sermon on the Mount. He was trying to tell them, no, this is the way this kingdom operates. Many theologians over the years, especially Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, in the 5th century tried to explain it in his great work, The City of God. He explained the City of God this way, God is present his character and authority defines it. It's where love, jersey, mercy, holiness exists. Everything is exactly the way God intends it to be. And it should be the desire of all us Christians to be there. Graham Goldsworthy, who's a theologian, defines the kingdom of God this way. God's people in God's place under God's rule. He even says this. That sort of time's tough to swallow and understand. 
We all are born east of Eden. Traitors, traitors to that kingdom. Paul tells us in Colossians 1.11, we live in the kingdom of darkness. Yeah. For decades, look, false teachers, liberal, revisionist theologians, secularists, progressives, all believe that this kingdom can be engineered through humanitarian efforts and good works, that they can be achieved by political and sociological means. Mankind can live up to its full potential, void of God. They refuse to accept the simple fact that it was always God's ultimate desire from the very beginning of time to reconcile man to himself. And Jesus says what here? His will will be done. Remember that truth. That this is, you know, the good news with scriptures. God wants none of us to perish. That's the good news. It's about reconciling mankind with himself. And Jesus confirms the fact, confirms the fact, it will happen. Look at the next verse, verse 11. I think it's also a statement of fact. We always want to turn it into sort of a petition, give us your daily bread. But he's trying to tell us, look, I'm the source of everything. I'm the provider. You know, look, I, I take care of you. You don't understand what's really happening behind the scenes. He was trying to teach the Jews that exiled out of Egypt. God was trying to prove to them that, look, I'm going to feed you every day. I'm going to provide manna for you. You know, the point here is, which our pride gets in the way, we are needy individuals. God's the provider. We're dependent, and we must learn to trust God, not only for the physical, but also for the spiritual needs. He has and he is trying to teach each one of us to live each day, not to be worried about tomorrow. It will happen. Don't let that overload you as you go through the daily life and everything that is involved there. But man's pride gets in the way. No, I can do it. I'm going to do it. He's trying to tell them that's not it. And man's pride has nowhere before the throne of God. The next statement there in verse 12, and forgive us our debts, trespasses, as we forgive our debtors and trespassers. In ancient times and even today, if we're honest, you know, a debt really does create severe pain for the individual or for the family involved with that debt. And to forgive a debt, it really is an extravagant show of mercy and quite rare back then. And you know what? Even quite, quite rare today for someone to forgive a debt. But this petition here is talking about the character of those who one day will reside in this kingdom of God, but they're currently here. They're currently here in the earthly realm. And he's trying to say their character is different than those of the world. The worldly group, what do they care about? What's their character? All they care about is themselves. It's every person for himself. Our own selfish ambitions, our own pleasures, our dominion, power over others. True forgiveness seems to be rare. 
in today's world because it's viewed as weakness. But the future citizens of heaven that exist here on earth, they show these type of qualities every day. You know individuals that show mercy and kindness and compassion and forgiveness. You know who they are. The king God makes this known because he first forgives us. And he's telling us he's going to forgive us the same proportion that we forgive others. You know, Jesus' words on forgiveness here, you know, he knew that people weren't going to agree with him and understand it. So what's he do? Now, we're not looking at it, but he even repeats it and gives additional clarification in verses 14 and 15. Look at verses 14 and 15. He tries to say, I know you didn't get it, but let me emphasize this again. And he says what? Without forgiveness, if you can't put things right with your fellow man, you can't put things right with God. That's what he's saying. And that's why we were instructed and we try to follow in our communion service. That before we take communion, what do we say and pray? If things are not right with you, with another, Scripture tells us what? To leave the communion table and go and make amends and make it right with others. And only after that, then come back and partake in the communion service. Look, I know forgiveness is difficult. There are hundreds of reasons why you can harbor your feelings and how that person, you know, did this unjustifiably. You know what? Scripture says, I don't care. I didn't say that. That's what God says. I don't care. So as difficult as it is, I'll tell each one of us today, check our own souls. Who have we not made it right with? Go ask for forgiveness. We must learn to love. And we do that first by being able to forgive others. The final statement here, and most people want to also think of this as a petition, but as we look at it, I might be able to change your mind. And it is a bit more complicated. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This one gets people wrapped up sometimes in knots. You know, look, we like to think that the world is a safe place, but it's not. And it seems like each day it gets to be a bit more dangerous. We believe that evil is distant, but here's the thing, evil does exist. The Bible clearly warns us about demonic powers and provides us examples both in the Old and the New Testament of their existence, and encourages us to be diligent, on guard, to oppose their influence. I read somewhere, and I don't know if it's Martin Luther, but I think he or some theologian said this. He said, evil's like a bird. You cannot stop it from landing on your head, but you can stop it from building a nest. You know, I like that. You can't stop it from landing on your head, but you can stop it from building a nest. You know, Jesus is trying to tell us here that we have a daily fight against these, if you want to say, as the Bible defines it, these principalities and powers. 
And he's trying to tell us, you need endurance. These temptations are real. And it's a daily threat to your relationship with God. And he's telling us also that, look, I don't think you're going to be able to resist that temptation on your own. Your own willpower isn't as strong as you think. So Jesus is trying to direct us to whose strength can and be a source of strength for, to help us overcome. Jesus does not teach us in this prayer that most of us would like to say. He doesn't say, Lord, give me more willpower. Does it say that in your Bible? Lord, give me more willpower. Does it say that? It says we should be asking for shepherding and deliverance. That's what it says. That's what it says. Not willpower. Shepherding. Guidance. Well, of course, we'd like to say, hey, Lord, just get me out of trouble. <laughs> Please get me out of trouble. Now, here's where people really have problems with this verse. This whole question about, you mean Lord can lead me into temptation? You mean we have to ask God not to? If I don't ask God, is God going to lead me into temptation? And therefore, you get the question that we hear many, many times. Can a holy, righteous, pure, blameless, virtuous God possibly lead anybody into temptation? And do we have to ask him to deliver us from evil? I mean, if I'm not, he's going to put me into evil? People have a real tough time with this. The unbeliever, they want to throw that right in the Christian's face. Oh, God can man, oh, that's just terrible. Now, let me see if we can sort of clarify some of these points. Because there's always going to be, if I can use the word tension, First, the word temptation here is really meant as the word trial. So it should be read, Lord, lead us not into trials. Now, I know you're going to say, you're going to run right away to the New Testament in James and say, hey, in James it says, count it all joy when you fall into trials because the trying of your faith brings patience and patience has a perfecting work. Okay, I get that. If I use the word temptation, some of you might say, wait a minute, wait a minute. God doesn't tempt us. It tells us in James also. James 1.13, let no man say that he is tempted. I'm tempted of God. For God neither be tempted nor God ever tempts any man. So what gives? Which is it? Well, let's admit some facts. Anybody here like a trial? I don't think anybody likes a trial. We want to run from trials. We don't seek them. It's the dread and the fear of our heart that we know as we go through these trials of life. That's something inside our human heart that says, Lord, spare me this trial. But if I have to go through the trial, deliver me from the evil that is evil potential that's in this. And I think that's sort of like the essence of what God is trying to tell us. So the prayer part of this, or the statement that God's trying to get us to understand is, you know, we have to have some self-distrust. We can't trust ourselves. You know, look, we are sinners. And we commit some of the same sins over and over and over again. We're just beaten down by this world. And so the prayer here is, Lord, deliver me from these things. And Jesus is trying to tell them. He's trying to tell them this. 
mankind, you live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. And this fallen world just pounds, pounds, pounds us with temptations of great strength, which man in our own humanness can never really resist. Let's be honest and objective. Here's some facts to consider from the real consequences of what God said to Adam and Eve in the garden. When he said, I'm going to put enmity between man and man, and enmity between man and women, and enmity between man and nature, most of us just look at it, they probably look at it and went, okay. But the consequences, we don't live in the garden. This is the consequences of the fall. Some would say, well, that's unintended. No, no, this is the real consequences. And look, let's just examine. Let's just be totally honest. Let's look at nature since the fall. What do we see? Hurricanes, volcanoes, earthquakes, fires, floods, pestilence, severe droughts, accidents, diseases, diseases like COVID-19, and eventually death. Those things didn't exist in the garden. Look at our intellectual world, the difficulty that man has in trying to find the truth. Our court, our judicial systems, their judgments sometimes just seem to be partial, inconsistent, and sometimes just unfair and wrong. Man careers off a chaos of thinking that I can determine what the truth is, and we act like gods. Our logic is ruled by pride. Our intellect is ruled by lusts. Material gain makes liars out of us. There's this constant colliding of human opinions. Just look at our big election that we have. Where's the truth? The truth in these colliding of opinions. All this tells me and shows me the fallenness of our intellectual world. Look at our emotional world today. Grief, care, anxiety, our inability to handle each other's attitudes. We take drugs to think straight. They advertise drugs. Hey, take this and you'll be well. Okay. Our lives, our lives are just rubbed together. Envy stings us. Hate embitters us. Greed eats away our confidence. Rich step on poor. The poor want to dethrone the rich. Prisons, hospitals, mental institutions, penitentiaries. That marks to me the moral and emotional upheaval of man. Look at the spiritual world. Man's out of harmony with God. Our moral nature is out of sync with God's divine plan. Evil tends to dominate us. We just feel pulled down by this irresistible gravity of sin. We're faced with overpowering evil. We're divided, and we have an almost inability to withstand it. So we cry out. We live in this, if you say, this fallenness. But we don't want to believe it's real. <clears throat> so this is what's happening. And we get additional verification in the Bible. Look at Scripture, what it says that happened in the book of Job. It provides us some insight. God does 
did allow Satan to bring certain trials into Job's life, but Satan did the testing, not God. So why would God allow tempting or trials? Why would he allow it? Maybe there are times when God allows Satan to have his way in our lives because, let's be honest, maybe we are disobedient and maybe unfaithful. Or there are times in Job's case here, Job, he allows Satan to do this to prove how righteous Job was. And maybe we are living in his grace. But God is not the tempter. Satan is. Men sin because they're tempted. They're tempted internally by this lust and externally by the enticement of Satan. It says in the scripture, when lust conceives, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. Don't make a mistake on this point. Everything that proceeds from God is good. It's perfect. You've got to keep this tension in your mind. And it's important for you to understand this theological truth. And some people have major problems understanding this all the time. God allows certain things to happen. It's not an expression of his heart, his will, his character. If you want to know what God's opinion of this is about temptation, look at what Jesus says to the, to the disciples in Matthew 26. He says, watch and pray, lest you fall into temptation. Watch and pray. He wants us, he wanted them to avoid it. But what does Satan do? Here's Satan's playbook. This is what it says in Scripture. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. What's the third one? 1 John 2 says, and the pride of life. And these are all from the world. They're not from the Father, you see. Those things do not proceed from God the Father, but from the world, from the flesh, from the devil. And this is the framework of what God allows. And I, I believe more than anything, this is where the concept of free will lies. Are you going to give praise and glory to God as you go through these trials and temptations, or are you going to... I don't know. And remember, a, a test or a trial, the word itself is neutral. Does it mean good? Does it mean bad? Being a test or a trial, it means you could succeed or you could fail. There's something that's going to happen. And what's going to happen, it depends upon me and you, what we decide. When God brings a trial, there's always the possibility that it's going to turn into a temptation. And look at what we learn in the Old Testament with Joseph in Genesis 50 and 20, regarding his brother selling him into captivity in Egypt. Remember the words, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. In every struggle and trial of life, God uses it to exercise, to strengthen, to grow us to maturity. But if we don't view it through the lenses of God, if we don't get on our knees and pray and look at it from God's part, then Satan is going to turn it into a temptation and entice our lusts and draw us into sin. You say, well, why does that happen? It says in the scripture he does that to test the genuineness of your faith. It can be more precious than gold. 
You see, it's a potential opportunity that we all have. We all say, Lord, use me. Make me a human living sacrifice. This is your chance. This is what it's about. Are you going to go through that trial and give glory and honor to God? Your faith is on trial. Because others are watching. The world is watching. But Satan has tried to turn it to evil. So what I'm telling you here, what, he, what Jesus is telling us is, look, this is about you exercising your faith. You're developing this muscle as God tested Abraham. God wanted to show in Hebrews Abraham how virtuous a man he was to strengthen his faith. But Satan wanted to turn it into a temptation. So here Satan, he enters into the trials. God is trying to use the trials to perfect us. And as I said many, many times, not only to strengthen us, but to strengthen others who are watching. So the question is, you know, when they watch and they see and hear what you say, are they going to trust God? The idea many times is to bring us to our knees and put our faith where it needs to be. Look, Jesus knows these facts. Did you ever stop and think? He was in heaven and saw firsthand the revolt of the angels. He was in heaven and saw what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. He was there in heaven watching how Satan tested Job. He saw the testing of Elijah on Mount Carmel. He himself, when he became man, was tested by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. He was there and saw and heard Peter when he was tested and denied him three times. He knows and he's trying to tell you. Do you get it? Do you understand? It's only with God's active help that we can overcome these pitfalls, these problems that we face in our daily life. Martin Luther said this, we can't help but being exposed to these assaults, but we pray that we may not perish under them. And that's the essence of this prayer. You see, what Satan is trying to do, he's trying to make us bitter, angry, resentful, to turn away from God and his mercy. And you see that constantly. Look, I have friends, family friends, when they go through these problems, they come out and they express anger. They're resentful. They even curse God. It's God's fault. Those are the living sacrifices that test, and we, if we're the Christians, they're watching what we say and how we handle these trials of life. And what you say and do is more important than any preacher giving a sermon on. That's the living sacrifices of your faith that is shown in what and how you show that honor and praise to God for giving you the strength. So how do you deal with this? Well, James 4.7 says, submit yourself to God. Say it again. James 4.7, write it down. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. That's what he says. And how do you do that? What are you talking about? Well, do what God says. That's what it says. Where do I find what God says? In the Bible. And what's he really saying? He's saying submit to the biblical principles of life 
and living. That's what God wants you to do. But, 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 but. We don't want to do that. As I go through the trials, what do I want to, hey, Lord, get me out of this, get me out of this. I get out of it, and then what do many people do? They go right back into the sinful behavior. That's not what God's telling us to do. So we cry out to God, God, spare me of this trial. But if this trial fits your wisdom, if this trial fits your way, if it fits your plan, if it can be a living sacrifice to someone else, help me come out of that fire, that den where Daniel was without the smell of smoke on me. And even Daniel, when he was there, what did he want? He needed divine resources. He wasn't doing it through his own will. And it tells us that. It's reinforced in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, don't do it on your own strength. That's where, Lord, give me more willpower. No! That's not what it says. That's not the right way. Don't do it on your own strength. Verse 12, therefore... Let anyone who thinks he stands takes heed, lest he fall. Then verse 13, there hath no, no trial, no temptation from Satan that is common to man. Translation, you're not going to get a trial. You're not going to get a super duper out of this world temptation that someone else hasn't went through. It's not true. It's not what scripture says. And it says here, God will never forsake you, never, ever as you go through that, if you submit to the will of God. I mean, there's a condition here. You've got to be living the right way that God wants you to live. He's trying to get our attention. And again, the way out is the way through. You've got to endure it. That's the perfecting of your faith. So in other words, we need to lay claim to the promise. If we meet the condition. What's the con condition? Submit yourself to the Lord, and the devil will he'll flee. That sums up the prayer, and I think that's the meaning of what Jesus was trying to teach these people then, and also to us. Now, many might say, look at your Bible, look at your Bible, look at the Bible. But where is for thine is the kingdom and the power and glory forever? Is that in your Bible? No, I don't think so. I mean, there's much manuscript evidence that Jesus did not necessarily say that at both of these times. He probably did say it at times, but not there at the end of Matthew and in Luke. You know, it's, it's true. I mean, look at those words. His is the kingdom. That's God and the glory and the power forever and ever. It's true, and you know what? I like it. And I think it's a fitting place for us to close our study this morning. So let's end in prayer. In closing, Father, we echo this prayer in our own hearts. Deliver us from evil, Lord. Deliver us from sin's, sin's penalty, sin's dominion, sin's guilt. Deliver us from these sin's consequences affecting our intellect, our emotions, deliver our wills from bondage, our judgments from perversions, our imaginations from falsehoods, deliver our affections from what is earthly, deliver us from weakness that we know that we can't find the fullness in your own strength. But we thank you for this time this morning, Father. We bless you. 
We bless your name for it. We thank you for this prayer. Your name must be hallowed. Your kingdom must come and your will will be done. Continue to give us as abundantly as you have in the past our daily needs. Help us to be forgiving of others that we might know and feel the fullness of your paternal forgiveness. And thank you for the promise that you'll never leave us or lead us into temptation that we can't handle. But Lord, we can't handle any trial unless we submit to you and resist the devil. Help us meet this condition to know the fulfillment of the inestimable power of this prayer and to pray as we ought for your glory. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing. I don't know if you can hear my guitar, so I'll just play it really loud. <laughs> Is it on? Your will be done, my God and Father, as in heaven, so on earth. My heart is drawn to self-exalting. Help me seek your kingdom first. As Jesus walked, so I shall walk, held by your same unchanging love. Be still, my soul, oh, lift your voice and pray, Father, not my will, but yours be done. How in that garden he persisted, I may never fully know. The fearful weight of true obedience, it was held by him alone. What wondrous faith to bear that cross, to bear my sin, what wondrous love. My hope was sure when there my Savior prayed, Father, not my will, but yours be done. When I am lost, when I am broken, in the night of fear and doubt, still I will trust in my good Father. Yes, to one great King I bow. As Jesus rose, so I shall rise in ransom glory at the throne. My heart restored, with all your saints I sing. Father, not my will, but yours be done. As we go forth, our God and Father, lead us daily 
in the fight that all the world might see your glory and your name be lifted high and in this name we overcome for you shall see us safely home now as your church we lift our voice and pray father not my will but yours be done and in this name we overcome for you shall see us safely home now as your church we lift our voice and pray father not my will but yours be done father not my will but yours be done father not my will but yours be done and for our benediction let us go in peace and we ask god to keep us safe from evil this week for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever amen Shalom. Go in peace.